Greetings and welcome to another episode of Stamper Cinema. As always, I am your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for downloading this latest episode. I think it's episode 88, maybe 87, thereabouts. I don't know. It's somewhere. We're getting close to 100 people. So thank you for everybody that has that has downloaded an episode along the way. Really do owe you a lot. And as a little like token of appreciation, I'm going to deliver a banger of an episode this week. We are going to be covering one of my all-time favorite Stephen King adaptations. That will be 1986's Stand By Me. The film directed by Rob Reiner, starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Jerry O'Connell, Corey Feldman, Kiefer Sutherland. John Cusack has a cameo in it. And I mean, the list goes on. I mean, this movie is incredible. And our guest, our guest this week is equally incredible. He's a published author, keynote speaker, uh, international business advisor. Did I say actor? Because he's also an actor. He's got over like 30 years in the in the film and stage uh, business, which is pretty freaking incredible. One of his credits involve uh, one of his credits include Freddy versus Jason. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. I'm pretty excited uh, to share with you. He is also the author of the number one best selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. We'll see if we'll talk about that as well. I'm excited. This is going to be so much fun. Please welcome to the show, Tyler Foley. Well, again, Tyler, thank you very much for for uh, for being a guest on the podcast. How's it going? It's going really well, Andrew. I've been enjoying life and and just the day particularly. So we're we're doing good. Well, good. Now, for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself a little bit. Now they've they've heard my my little intro about you, but you know you better than I know you. So what what can what can we learn about you? Well, I, I guess the you know to to cover off anything not covered in the intro, I am a father, a husband, a son, a former child actor, current number one best selling author of not one but two books now. I'm super excited to say, and uh, a lover of warm beaches and a and a and fine chocolate. I think those are that's what you need to know about me. Now, for for fine chocolate, are you like a milk chocolate? Are you a dark chocolate? Chocolate? What you know? Do you are you like oh, no de- discrimination? No, no, no. I'm definitely discriminate, but uh, I like a. Uh, I don't mind either a dark chocolate or a a milk chocolate. White chocolate is an abomination, um, <laughs> uh, and it depends. Like you can get some really good milk chocolate. You can also get some really bad milk chocolate. You can get some fantastic dark chocolate you need some really bad bitter dark chocolate um and and bitter chocolate is not always bad chocolate so bitter doesn't make it bad um bad makes it bad so it just really depends i am a lover of fine chocolate so i like uh artisan chocolates we have a wonderful wonderful chocolatier uh international award-winning chocolatier based out of calgary bernard calibo and he makes good chocolate. And uh, we have another couple of different companies in the Rockies, uh, the Rocky Mountain Chocolate Company, and a couple other different uh, venues there too that, that make really good ones. And and I'm lucky I've gotten to travel all over the world uh, with a couple of my careers. And so, you know, um, obviously Belgian chocolate, very, very good, but Belgian chocolate is highly influenced by the French. French chocolate is fantastic. 
the Italians have taken it to a very high art form, but they usually their good stuff is usually infused with coffee, which is their specialty. I don't. I've never had coffee. I don't drink coffee in North America, but I do drink coffee when I go to Italy because it is fantastic. And because I've drinking and drank coffee in Italy, I will not drink coffee in North America. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, Japan and Hong Kong have incredible chocolate as well. I've had some of the, my best chocolate was at a hotel in Hong Kong and they had a five-star Michelin chef and he specialized in desserts and um, he made um, the, the pillow mints. It was a boutique hotel, probably only had 50 rooms and he handmade individual pillow mints for the rooms each night. You got this little tray of like two or three chocolates and uh, this one uh, day, um, they were hand-dipped dried acai berries. Mm. Oh, man, I've never had something so crisp and flavorful. And then he had like uh, sea salt on the outside of it. Just It was so, so good. So good. I'm, I'm in love right now. I mean, that just sounds that, yeah, that you, you, you painted a really great picture of that too. So yes. Is it, Cause I am salivating as I say, <laughs> thinking back in the memory, wishing I could have it right now. Yeah. Now, I mean, not that I'm against uh, talking about chocolate for the next, you know, 40 minutes, but I do kind of want to talk about stand by me because this is, this is the film that, that you selected for the discussion of our podcast. And so oh, I'm sorry, be- Andrew, I, I thought I was on Stamper Culinary. Oh, this is <laughs> Stamper Cinema. Oh, right. Okay. No. Yeah. Let's do Stand By Me. Let's chat about that. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, you just said before we even get into that, you had mentioned that, you know, like now two books. So would, you know, for the listeners that haven't read, haven't read your books, what do they what do they need to know about you? Um, well, the, the first one is the best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. Uh, what they need to know is that it is not me on the cover of my book, although I wish it was. That dude works out and has great lats, and I would I would love to have shoulders like that, but I do not. Um, and then the most recent book that I published was actually a collaboration that I was asked to be involved with, uh, with the co-founder of a pod match where you and I were actually yeah. introduced, uh, Alex Sanfilippo. And had reached out to me and I, we published a book called uh, pod match guest mastery uh, because I've been the number one ranked pod match guest for the last 18 months. Uh, so that's really fun. And that book uh, took off. We had a really good team around it, 16 uh, contributing authors to the book and, uh, and we hit a number one on its release day in Amazon. So that was really really, really cool to be able to contribute that and hopefully give back to a community that has served me so well and, and has provided me so much and so many opportunities, including this one. Yeah. Like how great is Podmatch? I mean, not that this is supposed to be an advertising uh, advertisement for it, but Podmatch is freaking awesome. I love it. Yeah, no, it's hands down the, the greatest platform for people who both are hosts of shows and guests on shows. And just to be able, I mean, I've, I've been doing my own press and PR for years and years and years being a former child actor. Um, you know, I, I actually have a PR agent. My PR agent um, was the first one to get me and really push me to do podcasts. 
Cause at first I thought they were just these silly little things, you know, and guys in basements with microphones and, uh, and, and I rapidly realized how, uh, wrong I was <laughs> that there's, there's, first of all, it's an incredible community, like the really supportive community and really, um, really powerful actually too, when it comes to promoting and marketing and sharing of ideas and long format content and, and just everything in general, it's amazing. And so I've been on multiple matching services for me as a guest to find shows to be on. And I have uh, an agent who actually does show placement for me as well. And frankly, Podmatch has made my agent obsolete. She books me on maybe four or five shows uh, a year. I've been on over 220 through Podmatch in the last 18 months. So, you know, do the math. Right. <laughs> she gets she get me on the big one, right? Like, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily always equal a great show. I've right. been on some amazing shows. I've just, like really, really good shows and, and collaborations that have gone forward. So like I, I'm in debt to Alex and what he's put together with pod match, including getting us together because I've just, I've been, this has been circled on my calendar for months now wanting to come on and, and chat with you and talk all things, movies and try to stay on topic, which we're already failing at. Miserably. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even got, yeah. We're like 10 minutes in and haven't even let's digress. Yeah. All right, Stand By Me, 1986, uh, Rob Reiner directed film, obviously based on the novel The Body by Stephen King. Mm -hmm. Tyler, why do you want to talk about this? Oh, well, uh, because we're recording this just after Halloween, it's one of the first movies to ever terrify me. Um, I remember the first movie that um, my I got to watch that I shouldn't watch, and it was... Um, night of the living dead my mm. cousin pam played it and i remember being like eh, scary and then we watched one of the nightmare on elm streets i think it would have been four because i think it was um that would have been dream dream master yeah dream master that's what it is and uh and i was again i was like Meh. but the first time i saw stand by me because it's first of all it's tame for the first you know 80 minutes it's only a 90 minute film mm -hmm. but, but the first time i saw the dead body i just went it was ter it was terrifying to me i couldn't i couldn't see it for i couldn't actually watch that scene probably until my early 20s and mm. not like close my eyes i don't know probably because it was so subtle and realistic and it was such a flash um, that it just, I, I, I would get anxious every time it was coming up. Like I couldn't actually watch that part of the scene. Cause I knew exactly, you know, when, uh, Gordy would move the stick and when he would flip it up and the reaction of watching him and watching, uh, the Chris Chambers character played by River Phoenix, um, and watching their just, I, I don't know. There was something about it that was so real and it just resonated with me. And then on top of it, it was just a fantastic film because I was, yeah, I, I started in theater in 1986 and there was kind of, I really identified with, with those boys as child performers 
and getting to see a reflection of this is what could happen with my career if I just put in the time and and really, you know, dedicated myself to the craft. So there were for so many, it was so influential for me. It was one of the first VHSs that I ever owned, mm. you know, and I probably played that tape raw. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I know that's true because I remember, cause I would watch it probably once a week. And at the beginning of the film, when Richard Dreyfus as uh, older uh, Gordy, is uh, doing his voiceover monologue at the beginning and they've got the stand by me in an orchestral version is playing at the beginning do 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 my version <laughs> on an old vhs tape would go like <laughs> 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 if, if you bow, bow really bad and and distort so i know that i i played the hell out of that tape and just loved it yeah you the the I, don't, I guess the reveal but yeah when we when we see ray brower's body like that even like that voiceover from richard drivers that also makes it very haunting he's like yeah. the what does he say he's uh the boy wasn't sick the the boy wasn't sleeping the boy was dead the boy was dead yeah yeah and yeah. it's just like very very real because i mean the, i mean obviously at the core and we haven't even like covered the plot i'm assuming most people listening to this have seen the body or rather have seen stand by me but if you haven't i'm kind of like ripping this off from ron tomatoes but it's the summer of 1959 and after learning that a stranger has been accidentally killed near their rural homes four oregon boys decide to go see the body on the way gordy lachance Vern tessio chris chambers and teddy duchamp encounter a mean junk man in a marsh full of leeches as they also learn more about one another and their very different home lives. Just a lark at first, the boys' adventure the boys' adventure evolves into a defining event in their lives. So yeah, I mean, at its core, four kids go to look for a dead body, but it's it's really just their coming of age, end of the summer, four kids about to like go into junior high in this like very, very pivotal moment. But the the moment that you know they they share these great campfire stories but that moment when they see dead body it's no it wasn't an adventure anymore it, like how like yeah. seeing that was very very real but it also helped change them and as a viewer we're like we don't even know what we're we're, we're just enjoying this ride and that moment isn't like you know anything to really celebrate it's very very it's very tragic well especially because the whole right the premise was that they were going to be heroes. Um, you know, Teddy Duchamp. We're going to be on TV. And, yeah, we're going to be on TV. They're going to write about us in the papers. We're going to be heroes, right? I remember like, and Corey Feldman did such a good job of that. You know, like and that line just, you know, it resonates the way that he does it. And going to be on TV. And he, and so it's like this, you know, they're doing it for the fame and the fortune that's going to come. There's going to be a reward. They're going to call it in. And that's what makes that voiceover at the end so impactful because he says, you know, uh, in the end, we decided that an anonymous phone call to the police was best, which is really, really funny because at the beginning of the movie, when Vern is sitting underneath the porch and he finds out about it, uh, listening to, you know, right, his brother Billy and eyeball are talking about it or is it eyeball? no it's billy and one yeah i think it is it's billy one of those characters billy's talking to and Vern hears you know overhears the story digging for his pennies which by the way 
I ended up doing it. Like, I love that so much. I ended up burying a jar of pennies in my backyard <laughs> just because I thought it was so funny. Um, and, you know, you they are talking about, well, we should just phone, we'll just phone in an, an anonymous phone call. And they're like, you tra- they trace those phone calls. Don't you ever watch Dragnet? Just like a great line too. And got me hooked. I ended up wanting to watch Dragnet and then you couldn't for years and years and years. And so when you finally could stream it, you know, I was like, cool, Dragnet. This is what they were talking about. Uh, it was a disappointment <laughs> to me because I'd built it up from my youth. And, you know, I thought it was a really interesting full circle within a plot within the plot that ultimately those boys could have saved days of anguish for this family, ultimately, who doesn't know where their young son is. And the Browers are probably, I mean, that's the thing that we never find out about, right? Like, how are the Browers? Because mm-hmm. their son is dead. Um, but these boys could have knew about it for days and days and days and days and could have phoned the cops. There was nobody was going to trace the call. Nobody was going to get them in trouble. And these guys chose not to do it. And yet the young boys go on the adventure uh, thinking it's going to be adventurous. And then at the end, as you said, it, it becomes so somber. And I think that, like I said, it just really, really resonated with me. And I think part of that too, my father passed away when I was six years old, which would have been in 1986. And so the movie came out right around that time. It was one of the first movies that I saw in theater. Um, after his passing, I actually, my, my uncle was a huge, huge, huge cinephile. And um, it was right at the time when beta and VHS were competing VHS won and or beta lost And so my uncle had gone to uh, a video shop and they were clearing out all the VHSs for like 25 cents a copy. He literally bought every copy, He bought out the store. He created his own video store in the basement and we would watch movies and movies and movies. So when my dad passed away, my uncle took me and my cousin Jamie and we saw two movies, uh, within about a week of each other while I was away from school and like to get me away from the house so the mom could do the things that needed to be done. And we saw the Goonies and stand by me. And those are like the two, you know, to this day, I watched those movies. I, and the princess bride, another fantastic Rob Reiner film mm-hmm. are kind of like the staples of my childhood. But that one, I think particularly resonated with me because I had experienced what death was like and it wasn't a thing to be celebrated. And I think the fact that it was so somber at the end subconsciously really triggered with me that. And I think it really creeped me out seeing Ray Brower's body um, because, you know, I could identify, right. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know, he ain't sick. He ain't sleeping. He's dead. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it really, again, shaped so much of what I do now, I associate back to that film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm just trying to like wrap my head around being six, losing your father, and then seeing a movie like this, that, that tackles something very, very rich about, about, you know, um, about death and what type of emotional response did you have 
Well, and again, the first the first bit of response, particularly at the end with that reveal was 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 scare. Like it was the first like I said, it was the first time where I really felt um, terrified right. of something, mostly because I think they handled it so well like that. It's a very real depiction of what it would be like. And so that was it was terrifying for me. One of the things that I liked the most about the movie is although the plot is centered around the the journey going to find this area by the lake where the railroad bends and they know exactly where it is. Um, it's it's about friendship. And the other thing about it, I mean, um, Ray Brower's death is not the only death that's tackled in that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. We have two fatalities at the end of that, that are discussed. And, and then Gordy's older brother. Yeah. And Gordy's older brother too. You're right. You're three. And so for me, I think it had a real honest depiction about death, about grieving um, and how everybody grieves differently. I think one of the things that I liked about the movie was that it gave me the freedom to grieve differently. You know, um, my sister, who is uh, three and a half years younger than me, uh, was very emotional with her grieving process, you know, she would cry openly a lot and make big, you know, big displays of it. And I really internalized mostly because I didn't understand for a very long time, although I could understand the concept that my father wasn't going to be coming back. It was still, there's a finality of it that at six years old, you can't fully comprehend or process. I remember the first time that I actually uh, grieved my father's passing was in the sixth grade. So we're like six years removed mm. from the time that he passed to the time where I first, it first dawned on me that he's not coming back. And I think one of the nice things about stand by me is you see how Gordy deals with his brother's death. You see how his mom and his dad deal with his brother's passing and they're, they're drastically different. You know, no, no of the three of them grieve the same. And I think that was interesting for me to see. Again, I, I can't, couldn't process it at the time, but looking back, it was a nice model for me to look at and be like, oh, it's okay for me to, to feel the way that I'm feeling or more specifically have the absence of feeling. And one of the nice things about that movie and one of the things that I've carried through my life is the, uh, the bond of those young friendships right at those formative years and how those can carry through because i'm still friends with uh you know a lot of people that i knew in elementary school a lot of people that i knew through junior high and high school there's a core group of about 20 of us that stay in in very close contact and you know unfortunately we have lost a few of our friends along the way and we're not all that old i'm 43 right now and, you know, things have crept up, you know, we've lost some friends to automobile accidents and cancer and all kinds of different stuff, mental health issues. And, you know, and so this movie was interesting for me because I can always go back and rewatch it and take something new from it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's movies you watch and you're like, I know the plot of that, whatever, but I can always pull something new 
from it. And I think that's a testament to a lot of different things. I think that's a testament to an incredible story written by Stephen King to begin with, an incredible adaptation that was done, a masterful direction done by Rob Reiner. And, you know, the subtlety of it, because you look at all of Rob Reiner's other work, this is really an aberration within that catalog mm. because it's, it's, it's subtle, you know, it's, it's not a comedy. There are comedic moments in it. It has levity to it, which I think you need, but he had a very light touch with the direction on it. And I think because of that, the, it translates so well because we really are just observers on this journey. And, but we're in a way that we feel like, you know, it's not four people that are taking that trip along the train tracks. There's five of us there. There's the four boys in the audience. And I think, I think it's done so, so well. So the direction is incredible. And then we are invested in that story because it's well-written, well-directed because it was so superbly acted. I mean, you, there's, you look at the names that were in there. I mean, River Phoenix, and really one of his, his best known roles. Um, Will Wheaton, before Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, Corey Feldman, before the two Corys. Right? Jerry O'Connell, before My Secret Identity. <laughs> and everything else that Harry <laughs> Maguire and on goes on goes. He, you know, all of these uh Kiefer Sutherland yep. really coming into his own in this film. And you know, I you sure you have by, uh, John Cusack, one of his earlier John films. Cusack, roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and like just everybody who's involved in that film, they're not None of them, you could look at the performance and be, you know, like there's sometimes you see a performance, it's a performance and it's acting. I, I, when I envision these characters, that's who I think. Like when I see Will Wheaton doing anything in Star Trek, I'm like, well, it's Gordy LaChance, you know? And Jerry O'Connell, no matter how fit he's gotten <laughs> over the last couple of years. And Jerry, if you're listening, you look good, sir. You look good. I want some of the secret sauce. He's still the fat kid from Stand By Me to me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like, will forever be. And for all the stuff that Corey Feldman has done, and his filmography is massive, and iconic roles that he's done, he will always be, first and foremost, Teddy Duchamp to me. Like, that's just, it's just who he is. And same with Kiefer Sutherland. 24 means nothing to me. You know, he's ace, first and foremost. And I mean, he's had iconic roles, like massively iconic roles, like Lost Boys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yet, I think he went on to like right after this, I think he like shot Lost Boys. Yeah. Yeah. They were like boom, boom, back to back. And, um, you know, just, but to me, you know, he's ace Mm -hmm. or Donald, Donald Sutherland's son. Which apparently he didn't even know until like years later. Well, part of it is not recognizing that his dad was famous. That's Canadian humility for you. <laughs> um, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, you, you said a lot of shit that I just kind of like, uh, just kind of like cataloging in your mind. We got to get back to that. Gotta yeah, got to get back to that. Got to get back to this. Now, 
uh, one of the lines in the film, it, it's like the final line, right? And he's like, I never had any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus does anyone, right? You just mentioned, you know, that you had a good group of friends. You had like 20 or so. I mean, I was going to ask, hey, who was your gang? Of, of the four, who do you identify with closeless, like uh, most closely? Oh, uh, definitely Gordy. I was Gordy. Mm. I was a nerd who didn't know I was a nerd before nerds even had a title. You know, I was always a little bit awkward. I was always a little bit outside. And I always had this outsider feeling that I didn't quite belong with my group of friends. Um, and I had a little, like, I, I, I identified with Chris Chambers because I was, as much as I was an outsider and I was a bit of a nerd, I was still popular. And a little bit of a bad boy, a little rebellious, but I definitely, I identified like I, I, if you know, if I had to, you know, if we're playing the sex in the city and I'm a Samantha, uh, definitely, you know, if I'm playing the stand by me game, I'm, I'm a Gordy. Like I'm, I'm Gordy. Who was your Chris? Oh, I've had some great Chris's. Um, Probably uh, a really good friend of mine, his whose name is Chris, Chris Baisley. Um, he's my ride or die. I would I would do anything for him. Um, the difference being, Chris comes from an unbelievably good family. Like I love his mom. His dad, um, before he passed, was one of this single greatest exemplars of what a human being could be. Um, and, you know, I, I spend a lot of my life trying to be a good man and get better, you know, and um, Chris's dad just nailed it and he passed it along to Chris and, you know, there basically could be doing anything, anything in the world. He'd be anywhere on the planet. He, he phone call away. I would, I would drop everything to go and, and help him if he's in need, uh, join him on an adventure if he asked. And he's, you know, the first person I usually think of when I'm like, who, who needs to, who do I want to share this with? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a very short list, you know, who do I want to share this with? I want to share this with my wife. I really want to tell Chris about this. You know, but I've had many, many others that over the years of were in that, you know, um, my cousin, Jamie was, you know, he was my ride and die all through elementary and into junior high. Um, we kind of drifted apart as, you know, we aged and moved around the, the country. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I've had so many really good friends, even through high school, Dave McGowan, like there, there's so many. You know, I almost feel bad naming names because there's so many others that <laughs> have had such a, a profound influence. But yeah, if I had to, if I could only pick one, Bezel C wins, hands down. Awesome. Uh, adventures, maybe you didn't go like, you know, hang on a ride, you know, walk railroad tracks for a couple of days, but you have any, like any fun kid adventure stories? Maybe there was a little mischief, maybe there wasn't that you want to, that you want to share? Oh yeah. I remember the first, uh, time my mom really tanned my ass <laughs> because I had, 
Um, I thought, oh man, I was five years old. My best friend, Lisa Byers, and I wanted to go to the park. Her sister, Sarah, was older and knew how to get to the park. She was seven. And uh, we packed a lunch. It was like saltine crackers and peanut butter. <laughs> we packed them into this bag. I was on my tricycle. <laughs> Sarah was on a bike. Lisa was on the back of the tricycle because it had the little foot stand. And we rode to um, Birchwood Park and uh, just hung out underneath the slide, eating our saltines and peanut butter until our parents drove by and saw where we were and just screamed bloody murder. Uh, we were we were in a lot of trouble for not telling the adult folk where we were off to. And, you know, I've I've always been adventurous that way. I you know, my buddy, Jason Corbett and I, who's another, you know, Chris Chambers for me. Uh, he lives in Asia right now. He's actually um, one of the top international business lawyers. He has the top law firm in um, where's it? Bangkok. And, uh, you know, so I'll go over to Thailand and, and get into all kinds of crazy stuff with him. Like he's just, it just, it, adventures beyond adventures and even the you know me and my wife get up to a lot or did more um pre-child now our adventures are a little bit more tame but one of our favorite things to do would be like point the vehicle we literally spin the compass you know where where are we going northeast south or west and i remember one time i had literally said we're gonna drive south and it was before you needed a passport to cross the border and we ended up in whitefish for a weekend and uh we met a couple down there they had a cabin we ended up just hanging out like it was you know i do all kinds of crazy stuff like that where I just, we just end up places me and my, <laughs> another good friend of mine uh klein stuber um jamie klein stuber uh he there's a a hotel, a very famous hotel in Banff. It's the Banff Fairmont. And it's part of the Fairmont chain. But there is additionally a town in the Rockies that's about another three hours past Banff called Fairmont. And it is a famous hot springs. Banff has a famous hot springs. So they call often the Banff Fairmont Hotel the Banff Fairmont Hot Springs Hotel. It's not officially what its name is, but they will say it because it's at the base of the springs. Mm. And my buddy Jamie <laughs> saw this deal. The Banff Fairmont is the most expensive hotel in the Rockies. Uh, right now, my mom and I were just for giggles. We were looking just to see what it would be. A night there, it was uh, in peak, was $1,600 a night Canadian. So it's like $1,200 US for a night mm -hmm. they're tiny rooms they're not big because it's the castle in the in the rockies it was built in the 1880s and uh you know it's just ridiculous and he found this this deal to stay at the fairmont for 99 bucks and i was like no 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 jamie we're staying at at the fairmont hot springs because in fairmont at the hot springs they have a hotel that is right off the hot springs and you can stay there and i've <laughs> stayed there as a child and i knew so we had this bet. He's like, no, it's the, it's the Banff Springs. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to go early because it's three hours if I'm right, additional driving. You book the thing. 
I will drive. If we are have a room at the Banff Springs Hotel, I will pay for everything. And Klein Stuber knows how to drink because he's German. So he knows how to pack it back. <laughs> I said, I will, I will, everything is on me, the hotel, the gas, the everything. But we get there and they look at you and they, they say, I'm sorry, Mr. Klein Stuber. We don't ha- seem to have that name in our system. And then we drive three hours to Fairmont and they go, welcome. We were expecting you. You pay for everything, including the additional gas that goes there. He's like, okay. <laughs> we ended up at at this. I was right. It wasn't the Banff Springs. It was the Fairmont Hot Springs. And the check-in girl kind of had a crush on Jamie. And they had a little bit of a flirt on. We ended up at this private party up in the township. Um, and then we they were celebrating microbreweries. Mm. And so we had, we were drinking, we were sampling all of this microbrewed built a uh, beer from this really small town community, and then ended up hiking up to the real hot Springs. And we ended up skinny dipping in the middle of the night <laughs> in real sulfur hot Springs. Uh, and that like, I have tons of different examples of friends and adventures where we just go off of, because it's who I am. That's my yeah. core. I got to know, like, you ever get a, you know, uh, this is actually something that happened to Stephen King as a kid. But you ever get a leech on uh, in your nether regions? You ever that ever (laughs) happened to you? (laughs) I've never had a leech on me ever. And I have definitely been in leech infested waters. Although (laughs) when I was younger, um, my sister and I used to travel out to visit my grandmother uh, and my nan and granddad, and they lived in Nova Scotia, so far east coast, and I'm right in the Rockies, so I'm west coast. And they had a cabin by a lake, a little beach, and my sister and I would run into the water, and then yell, "Leeches, leeches!" <laughs> and then like come running out and like pretend to to scrape them off because we'd seen it in the movie, and my aunt would get so mad at us because it sounded like we were like in distress and she's like all the other people are wondering if you are actually in trouble you can't keep doing that i'm like but it's the funnest game on the planet to go running into the water then yell leeches and they come out have some fun but yeah it's funny because like the the 80s were notorious and i think there's even like a meme about it but like like things that like that i was that I had like irrational fears of when I was a kid, like quicksand, right? Quicksand is one of those things that I had like an irrational fear of. Leeches is another one because I mean, Stand by Me wasn't the only film that had leeches. I, I, I I'm drawing a blank right now, but like quicksand, shit, Princess Bride. There's that little like quicksand yeah. kind of like moment. Well, technically, lightning sand, but yes, lightning sand. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but it, it's it's funny because I remember doing that same type of shit when I was a kid as far as like uh, like yelling leeches. Oh, piranha, I think, was another thing yeah. that I was yeah. irrationally like afraid of because the, the movie The Toy that had Richard Pryor and mm-hmm. the movie Piranha. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, apparently that was something that happened to Stephen King once upon a time. So I think that's it's pretty genius. Now, getting into this movie, we you know I want to talk a little Rob Reiner because you had brought that brought him up, and you kind of talked his um, his resume a little bit. And 
I just have like an ongoing theory that I think Rob Reiner just might be one of the most underrated filmmakers because he's like a master of like he he's done masterpieces in like respective genres, right? Like yeah. one of the ultimate, if not the ultimate coming of age story in this film. Yeah. The arguably the greatest rom-com in the history of rom-coms and when Harry met Sally. Yeah. I mean, certainly in the top 10 best courtroom films and a few good men. Mm-hmm. You've got another Stephen King adaptation in Misery, which he does a fantastic job. Fantastic. In. Oh, yeah. And of course, one of the the the, the movies that kind of launched the whole like mockumentary uh, style in Spinal, Spinal Tap. Tap, right? I mean, yeah. and I know there's probably another. Oh, and then fucking Princess Bride, right? I mean, yeah, those are all bangers. And then, of course, he did The Sure Thing, which was, you know, kind of a like a like a college sex romp. Right. But yeah, he just just absolutely like masterful films in those ones that I just mentioned. And maybe just because he's a good collaborator that nobody really thinks of him as like a Rob Reiner film because I mean, yeah. most of those are just like adaptations from other people's stuff. But shit, if that like doesn't just like hit you in the holy cow, he's done some really, really remarkable films. Well, and one of the ones you didn't mention, and I think um, might have won. I don't think he won an award for it, but I definitely think it was nominated. Uh, Ghost of Mississippi. Like that's a powerful film. I I remember watching that. I was probably a little too young to watch it and to fully appreciate and understand what it was at the time. But that's a great film too. And then on top of it, he's a really good actor. I mean, he's not going to be win any Academy Awards for his performances. But he's just, he's an entertaining and likable performer. And I think that is reflected in his collaborative nature and how he directs. But yeah, no, I remember like you'd, you'd listed off some amazing ones. And then Ghost of Mississippi is one that kind of stands out to me because I always forget that it's a Rob Reiner film until I remember that it's a Rob Reiner film. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's good. Now, one of the, actually one of the things I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about because when we started discussing, hey, maybe we should talk about Stand by Me. You also referenced, you know, I also really do love Princess Bride as well. Maybe we can talk about that too. Um, I'm totally open uh, and you know open and wanting to talk about that movie as well. But I'm more than anything, I'm just kind of curious. What is it about even that film that that you love? Because you said you were watching Princess Bride around the same time that you were watching watching this as well. Um, I, again, it's one of those ones that was always on play. Uh, I think the princess bride babysat me and my sister for most (laughs) of our youth. Um, like right down to the fact that I know the trailers that come before, uh, the, the movie, one of them was the whales of something. And the, uh, it came out the same time there was a movie called The Rock of Gibraltar, but this this was The Whales, the whales of Summer, I think is what it mm. was called. And then Coming This Summer, and then it would move into, you'd get the little, uh, the logo, and then um, Fred Savage coughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly how it goes, by the way. That is the exact cough pattern of the beginning of the movie. And then you'd hear the baseball um, play of the Atari in the background. Yeah. And then, 
And then, then the movie begins. And I like, I just, I know the whole sequence. My cousin, Noel, who again is another one of my ride and dies. You want to talk about my close circle of friends. My cousin, Noel and I um, have been roommates and best friends for years and years and years and years. Um, and she, you know, we would quote that movie. Like we would like long road trips. Cause um, I grew up, although I am in Calgary. Now I grew up in a rural town just South of Calgary and my cousin grew up on our family farm. And so I, we would entertain ourselves while we used to have to drive around in the truck, um, feeding the livestock. And we would literally run through the whole movie, <laughs> you know, like we just, we would just do the movie and right. Starting from the cough on through, you know, your grandfather's here. You want, he's going to pinch my cheek. Maybe you won't this time. And <laughs> the look like it, like all of it, you know, Peter, and Peter Falk, right? Like, yeah. It, like just such a, what a wicked movie. It, it's it's perfect. That, it's yeah. perfect. Again, you know? just like shit, another Rob Reiner movie that I probably know the least amount, like I've, I've probably seen the fewest amount of times, but also really, really well done movies like with the American president as well. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and, uh, and he also did LBJ, which was a really, really good. I haven't seen LBJ. I, I, just, oh. I saw that he did it, but I haven't seen it. It's, I didn't realize that it was a Rob Reiner film until his names came up in the credits. And I was like, where was where was I during this? And I, I watched it because it's a Woody Harrelson film. Mm. Who is, I had the joy and the privilege of getting to work with Woody on uh, the prize winner of uh, Defiance, Ohio. I was actually Woody Harrelson's stand-in. And that was fun. So, you know, I was, I was, I, LBJ came out and I was like, I want to watch this. And then, you know, you're, you're watching it and, you know, and I like Jennifer Jason too, Jennifer Jason Lee. And, uh, and then, you know, you're seeing that you're directed by it. I'm like, Rob, right. This is a Rob Ryder film. Cool. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It's just like it, 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 things like that. Sticking with him, but also kind of like going back to the movie a little bit. The one of the things that I think that I had read is Rob Reiner saw a little bit of like himself in Gordy. In fact, like he was, you know, instead of like being his brother's shadow, he was kind of in his father's shadow because obviously Rob Reiner yeah. is the son of Carl, Carl Reiner, one of like the all time fucking yeah. greats. Right. Yeah. And uh, so that was something that, you know, that was really, really uh, that I mean, and shit, even Stephen King, which is great because the guy, he, he's he's a tough man to please, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's been good adaptations. There's been a lot of bad adaptations, but like he's been on like record and saying like, this is like his favorite or like, in fact, he he wrote, I forget the name of the book, but like um, he had this quote where he said, Stand By Me was the first really completely successful adaptation of my work. It was a deeply felt story for me because as a writer, it was a story that stepped outside the horror genre there's nothing particularly supernatural about the story, although it runs a gamut of emotions. And I felt like Rob Reiner responded to that and was made better by it and basically realized the story as a film, which doesn't happen very often in a creative person's life. Pretty high praise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And but I I think it unbelievably deserved. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we talked about it earlier, like there's there's so many elements to that story. And I 
I really honestly think that's one of those things where 50 years from now, some film studies class somewhere is going to be going through this and discovering even new and more wonderful things about it. Because I, I have to have watched that film at least 200 times. And that is under no exaggeration. And I really honestly feel that every viewing of it, including now, like I, I sit down and I watch it with my daughter. Mm-hmm. She's not really all that thrilled with it because it's a bit of an older film and it's <laughs> not cartoony, but I, you know, we've watched it two or three times and I just, I, I get something new out of it every time. This, you, you had mentioned something earlier and I kind of, that was one of the things that I wanted to park and bring back is that this is a movie that also grows with the viewer, right? When you, if you watch this as a kid, you identify with the kids because it's like, I'm, mm-hmm. I want to go out on fun adventures and you're, you're going on a fun adventure, right? You're, you're the fifth person in the group. And as you get older, and now you're a parent and you have kids and you watch this, there's that element of nostalgia of, again, what he says, he never had friends later on, like the ones he had when he was 12, right? So you remember being 12, but now you also are a parent and you're trying to put yourself in the eyes of kids, right? So it's a movie that's mm-hmm. very, very smart. So it grows with you as oh, an yeah. audience. So like rewatchability factor is extremely high with this. Of course, if you like it and audiences did, I mean, critically, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, 92%, audience score, 94 It made over $50 million in the box office on like a $8 million budget. Seemingly pretty, pretty successful. Most critics, apart from this one guy with the Chicago Tribune, who didn't give it a really glowing review. But apart from that, really, really good stuff. Well, and I think uh, part of that rewatchability is it's still from an era when movies were 90 minutes mm-hmm. yeah. it's an hour and 29 minutes. Like it is a digestible film. You go, you do. Right. I miss being able to go to a movie at seven 30 and get out at nine. Mm-hmm. Like I shouldn't have to plan four hours. This is not every movie doesn't need to be Lawrence of Arabia. And yet they all are. They right all now. are. They all are. Right. They all are. There is, there is. And I, I don't know if that is, um, because this was a trend before streaming. Like this isn't this isn't a new trend. It was all they were always trending to longer films. But one of the things that I think I love the most about that those mid eighties films, like eighty three to eighty seven, eighty eight, somewhere in around there, film was ninety minutes. Mm-hmm. That was what a film was, and I think one of the the smartest things about stand by me is it adapted a short story Mm -hmm. so it had the time for the subtlety and the nuance and you could get to know these characters and they were varied complex with incredible relationships that you still understand and you can explore further down the line because the text that was adapted was small enough that you could get that subtlety into it. And I think that's one of the reasons that this, and that's why I said, you know, like we went through a list of Rob Reiner's films and some great ones, misery, fantastic, right? A few good men, amazing. But there's a subtlety to this film that you don't have in those other ones. Mm -hmm. Kathy Bates performance in misery is Academy award winning, literally. Right. And you have 
just unbelievable. But there's still there's a, there's a violence and there's a spectacle to it. Like I think of that scene where she hobbles him, right? And you, but you get like there's there is very obvious camera direction within that film. With somebody who's been in the industry for over thirty years, I see camera movement, I see camera placement, I see lighting tricks, I see all of that, and there is very forced specific direction powerful good direction but specific direction like the audience is you're being forced to see a thing at this moment and the camera's being placed here and then the camera's being placed here uh a few good men i you know everybody knows the courtroom scene and that's just two of the biggest over-the-top actors that we have in hollywood with tom cruise and um jack nicholson jack nicholson doing their absolute acting the hell out of the scene you know uh, and Demi Moore doing the best to you know ground it <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah yeah they you know they're they're so over the top with it it's powerful it's great it's a great scene but that's what everybody thinks of when you think and but that's what I love the most about Stand By Me doesn't need forced anything to still have a very powerful dramatic telling yeah no i i I totally totally agree um now my computer isn't acting up but looks like i'm i've got a little storm in the area so it's messing up with my internet right now so i do apologize for that but 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 uh, I do want to just for the listeners just a kind of couple like fun little facts about the movie this uh as a result of this movie, Rob Reiner would go on to create Castle Rock Production Company, which, you know, um, was based, you know, they're in Castle Rock, although in the novella, it's obviously Castle Rock, Maine, because everything Stephen King does is in Maine, but they film this out in Oregon. But Rob Reiner creates Castle Rock Production Company, which anybody that's a fan of Seinfeld knows that Castle Rock, like logo that you get at the end of every single Seinfeld episode. Um... Oh, the the two dollars and thirty seven cents that the boys essentially like scrounge like scrounge up for their for their journey in like this year's equivalent that'd be like twenty two bucks. That's not too bad. It's not bad actually. It's not bad at all. I, I I'm sure a more experienced shopper could do more with your eleven cents for. <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite line in the yes. whole movie. Um. But the another fun little thing is obviously the the amount two thirty seven, which is a number that Stephen King has used before, like uh, most notably in The Shining, room two thirty seven. So like two dollars and thirty seven cents. So nice little connection there. But one of the most important questions that I've got for you, Tyler. I mean, this one's huge. So I mean, I want you to think long and hard about this one. But what the hell is Goofy? What what is it? Is he, if he, he's not a dog. Of course he's a dog. He can't be. A, wears a hat and drives a car. <laughs> I Goofy is a dog. Yes. Goofy no, is you're, a dog. you're right. No. Goofy is a dog. And can't be I mean, a dog. Vern asked the real hard-hitting question in that, do you think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Uh, not a chance. Not no. a chance. No. No, no. No, but I, to be fair, I'm biased because Superman is Canadian. Elaborate. That the the original comic 
was was uh, written by a Canadian. So Superman is Canadian. Like, why does Canadians like? Rather, let me rephrase it. Why, why do does we have Canada to like, to have all the good shit? Like, you've got all the best comics. We do. We do have all the best comics. I mean, it's not even close, right? I mean, they're they're all Canadian. Yeah, Deadpool and Wolverine both Canadian too. That's true. You guys have the best poutine. It's not even close. I mean, you know, oh, there's there some spots it's around because here that tried... was invented in Quebec. Yeah, I, I had know, so we, we better have the best. It's if you make it, it's ours. I had the pleasure of going to Quebec in 2015 uh, for like they, there's like this big festival in Quebec City and uh, spent like a week out there. And holy hell, is that like just a, a phenomenal town? I just I, I fell in love with it. I just like Quebec City is just incredible. And the poutine was like next level. It's probably one of our hidden. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's um, and underrated even within my own country and within its province, too. Like so many people know Montreal and they're like, oh, mm-hmm. Montreal. If I had a choice, uh, Quebec City, you know, I just I love I love Quebec City. I love the history of it. Not that mm-hmm. Montreal doesn't have it, but Quebec City is like. Yeah. Any any final thoughts on this movie before I put you on the hot seat and make it uh, go through some trivia? Oh, um, just that it, it really is one of those ones that had such a profound influence on me that I don't know if I love it so much because of that or if it's actually a really good film. And I'm always happy when I find other people who support my opinion of it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because then I know it's not just nostalgia because you and I had discussed, I have some nostalgia films like big trouble in little China. Yeah. I think it's a phenomenal. (laughs) Like I, I follow Jack Burton on, on Twitter. And it's just this guy that all he does is just like throw out like quotes from the movie. That's all it is. He'll just say a line from big trouble in little China. Well, why not? It's so, <laughs> so quotable and such a good performance. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I, I just love that film. I just love that film. But no, I mean, admittedly, there's so much, you know, this is, this was, this is more about you than, 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 than me. Like after you get off, I'm going to go on like a 10 minute, like rant on how much I love this movie, but I, you know, time's <laughs> precious. So I just want to know why you enjoy this movie, but I do. I do have some trivia for you. So it's a pop let's, quiz. Let's drop the trivia. Let's do All it. Right. All right. Pop quiz, rather. Okay. Question number one. It's not even a question. It's more of a, it's a finish this sentence. Chopper. Sick balls. <laughs> Correct. Now, what he said was, <laughs> Chopper, sick'em boy. What he heard was, Chopper, sick, sick balls. balls. Yeah. Um, question number two, which of the four boys cry in the film? This may or may not be a trick question. All of them. They all do. Yeah. All four. They, of all, them. they all have very, very specific yeah. moments. Yeah. Jerry O'Connell, uh, uh, his character is on the train tracks because he's mm-hmm. crying because the train's coming and Teddy has to pull him off. Teddy, um, when, uh, the junkyard man, uh, tells him that his father's a drunk, except for the loony up in tokus uh he uh he cries then um river phoenix cries because he didn't steal the milk money 
but the uh, lunch lady, yeah, lunch lady Doris came with a real fancy purse the next one. And uh, obviously Will Wheaton's uh, character is crying over, um, over the, over the death and that is, and his daddy issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think they're like one of the lines he's like, he, he didn't cry at his brother's funeral, his funeral. Yeah. But when he's telling like the story later on, like after like the, the reveal, like the dead body, that's when he has yeah. his moment. But yeah, all four of them have, and they're yeah. very, very specific scenes. Now, yeah. the, just, uh, just because we had mentioned Vern, that shot where Gordy and Vern are running towards the camera with the train behind <laughs> them, uh, for those that yeah. are kind of curious how they, how they did that. The train was actually at the far end of the trestle with the two actors on the opposite end. And the crew used a 600 yeah. millimeter long focus lens that, when shot at the telephoto end, compressed the image so much that it made look the train was right behind them. Yeah. Yeah. And a great, great. And that's the thing too. Like that's that again, one of the things that I love about Rob Reiner, practical effects, mm -hmm. you know, there was a creative, that's the other thing too. Like the late seventies and early eighties was this explosion of creativity and technology but like, you know, Kubrick did it and um, Spielberg did it and Lucas did it. And they all got really creative of doing in-camera effects. Right. And and I and I I wish that we could get back to that mm -hmm. because, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think people like Michael Bay films, because he actually goes and blows shit up. <laughs> He blows you know, everything up. Practicality that you just can't. It blows everything up. But they, there's something about just the realism of it. And, you know, it's it's funny because you'll have films that come out that are done practically. You know, and people are a marvel at it. Wow, can you believe they did this thing? And you're like, of course, it's, it's actually, hey, it's cheaper. Yep. And looks better. Like, let's get back to, let's get back to practical filmmaking. And yeah, no, that's one example of just some genius out of the box thinking. Yeah. Question number three: mm. What did uh, what did Vern bring on the journey? Oh, a coma, <laughs> of course. You have to look good for the camera. And <laughs> did your heart not break just a little, just a little, when the hat comb fell out of his pocket and dropped it three hundred feet to the river below? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, my heart breaks every time I see that. Mm -hmm. there is no like music or anything it's just like all like diegetic sound like you're you're just like there is this weird like kind of like weight you're like oh shit but it also is kind of like this weird uh foreshadowing in that the discovery is not going to be one that's going to be celebrated yeah they don't they don't need the comb because they're never going to be on tv yep yeah yeah all right. This one's a bit of a deep cut because I, I had to actually look this up, but this might be, you know, some some of the listeners might be curious about this. Do you know the name yeah. of the do you know the card game that the guys were playing in the clubhouse? No, you didn't deal me a pad hand. I have no idea what they were playing. I, I would. Was it Euchre? It's a game called 31, apparently. Now, I've never played it. I don't really know. But they're, I guess it's kind of like 21 in that you're trying to try to get as close to 31 as 31. possible. And certain cards have like a point value associated with it. I've never played it. I don't know it. Right. But I just had to scour the internet to find out what they were playing. So apparently it's called 31. I'd be curious to know, having spent 
literally years of my life on set if they were actually playing. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be surprised if it was like, because like I, I remember being, I, I would play asshole all the time <laughs> on set. And uh, there are a couple of other ones that similar to that, but like we, we, you know, you just play cards to keep yourself entertained. And I would not be surprised if those boys were actually playing that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, there, there are some fun stories about like that the kids run in amok, like in between like shooting and everything that there, there's, you, you hear these stories like, um, shit, even when they, then, um, Francis Ford Coppola's the outsiders, you hear the stories of what all those actors did just to be kind of like hooligans in between like they're shooting and same thing that apparently like they, they covered Kiefer Sutherland's car up with mud in, mm-hmm. uh, in between like shooting and they, you know, just all sorts of like fun little pranks and everything that they would do. So, um, I well, and I this. bet you a part of that has to do with the fact that, um, Kiefer really, you know, he comes from um, a very good lineage of performers. And he was like, of everybody that was on that set, he was probably the most seasoned of the actors. Mm. And to stay in character, he would pick on all four of the boys, uh, Will Wheaton in particular, Mm -hmm. really like he would, he would, he would pick on them. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was, a touch of retaliation right <laughs> coming back um last question how long had Vern been looking for the that jar of pennies under the house oh oh hold on let me think let me think on it I want to say six months you're close but- it looks like a six but upside down it's nine months. Nine months I've been looking for those pennies, right? Yeah, he's like, nine months, man. You didn't know whether to uh, laugh or cry. Wait, what was cry. It? Yeah, laugh or cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah, you didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And that, that again, to the 11 cents, I haven't found my pennies yet. Like, and just <laughs> the, the way that Jerry O'Connell delivers that is so good because he's because you can hear the defeat in him. Everything about that character is defeated. Mm-hmm. You know, like the comb goes and he goes oh you know and i haven't found my pennies yet like just oh it's such a good performance it is wild like because you i mean you don't necessarily laugh at Vern, but he's kind of the kind of the heel of the group right and yeah in, in a matter of speaking and uh you know you, you look at I mean, everybody that's been in that film, they've gone on to do really great stuff. But of the of the four, Jerry O'Connell's had the obvious most successful career as an adult actor. And it's like, good for him, you know. Uh, but obviously, yeah. Corey Feldman had enough careers for anybody by the time he was like 21, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that I mean, Corey was in everything and just incredible career. And then of course, obviously, we know um what happened with River Phoenix, but yeah, not really. Yeah don't really have anything really more to add to that. I was just, I'm, I was just always kind of like amazed that it's Vern, the one that, that grew up and just crushed it as a, as an adult actor as well. Well, and as a, as a human doing amazing things too, right down to the fact that he's, you know, married to Rebecca Romaine, like right. <laughs> <laughs> good on you, Jerry. Yeah. Good on yeah. you. I, 
had the pleasure of uh, meeting Mrs. Romaine when she was still Romaine Stamos um, mm. on the set of um, X-Men 2. Uh, I was doing the um, makeup testing for Nightcrawler. And um, she, uh, while they were still doing the Nightcrawler makeup, obviously the Mystique makeup had already been established and done. And uh, she came in to get her makeup done and it's a long process. So we were actually in the chairs beside each other for about four hours, uh, both getting incredibly blue <laughs> and, uh, and had a, just a wonderful conversation. She was absolutely pleasant. And then my favorite part, part of that was not the conversation with Rebecca Romaine Stamus, Rebecca Romaine now. Um, but when they brought me out to, um, as part of the, the testing, we had to go and, and get approval. And, uh, so they took us into the studio and they were filming in, uh, not Magneto, uh, Xavier's, uh, the, the brain thing. I can't remember what it's oh, called right. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cerebrum. In yeah, Cerebrum. Yeah, Cerebrum. So it's just outside of the Cerebrum set. And it was all blacked out and the lights were like super bright inside of it. And so it made the, the black outside even more dark and ominous. And so I, and they put in the little contact into your eyes and like, I could not see a thing. And they kind of guided me to a set chair and sat me down. And I hear from just off to my side, uh, this voice, it goes, are you feeling well? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? And I have no idea who's talking to me. And then I hear, because you're looking a little blue. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> that's funny. And then I hear, uh, we're ready for you, Mr. McKellen. He goes, it was lovely talking to you. And he walked away. I didn't even know. I didn't know that I just had one of the greatest dry British senses of humor uh, immediately beside me in Sir Ian McKellen. And uh, it's it's seriously the highlight of my career. <laughs> that is incredible. That's incredible. Now, Nightcrawler, was that what Alan Cummings' character? That's Alan Cummings' character, yeah. And he was, um, I can't remember what he was doing. I think he was still doing, um, not Chicago, what's the musical? Um, Cabaret. I think he was still doing cabaret in New York mm -hmm. at the time we were filming. I could be wrong about that because he might have been doing some. Like he was he was away. He was not around, and it was significantly cheaper to have me run through all the makeup tests. And I was there for like it was a three week gig mm. because they had to do. Uh, first of all, they had to establish what the character's makeup was actually going to look like and how they were going to uh, put it on. A efficiently the first time we did the makeup it took over 14 hours by the time i was done they had it down to about two and a half three hours but then there's also that scene where he puts on the um the flesh tone makeup and then um it starts to sweat off of him and then mm -hmm. the blue reveals underneath and they had to figure out practically how they were going to do that um and so they played around with some different techniques with that for for days and days and days i was washing blue paint out of orifices i didn't know my body had <laughs> for weeks literally weeks i remember coming out of the shower 
remember. It had to have been a, a month after the last time I was in the chair. And I kind of did one of these things with my ear, right? You get the little bit of water in your ear. And I kind of did that. And I went and I still had blue paint on <laughs> on my nail. And I was like, that's disgusting. That is so gross. That is incredible. Uh, Tyler, one final, final question while I've got you. And then I'll, I'll let you out of here. Yeah. Just because we are right around Halloween. You're, well, Halloween's already happened, but it's it's still pretty close to us. And obviously... Yes. You know, one of the one of the credits that you've got on your resume is, you know, Freddy versus Jason. So I just I, I got to know what was that experience all about? <laughs> Fucking surreal. <laughs> it, was, it was hands down uh, the craziest gig that I've ever had, mostly because um, it was it's such a nothing role. Mm -hmm. like it's it's a blinking you miss it i'm barely a day player initially the role wasn't even supposed to be an actor credit um they had originally scheduled it to just be a background character and then they realized with the interaction that they ended up needing to give the character a line and uh so then it needed to go through casting but by that time casting had already been done so uh main casting didn't even handle the casting of it it was actually we cast through extras casting and Annette, uh, who is the background casting director for it, uh, knew me and I was already standing. I was already a stand in on it. I was Jason Ritter stand in for it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was doing some photo doubling on it and I knew all of the stunt guys on it. So I was doing, um, I didn't do any stunts on it, but I did stunt support. So like rigging setup and stuff like that, uh, particularly at the crystal Lake, um, set, uh, they was there's that scene where um freddie is clipping off with his glove the ends the cap ends of propane tanks mm -hmm. uh, or acetylene tanks and they're like shooting up i helped out with all of the rigging uh, setting up that scene um so i was already there and on the set and annette was like hey do you want to do you want an actor credit and i was like yeah of course i want an actor credit she's like great this is the scene and originally it was going to be me and a really good friend of mine, Laura, that was going to play it. And then when Annette, when, when Laura got the sides that day and she's like a uh, naked girl having sex on hell. No, definitely not with Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I'm not doing it. My career. I don't need an actor credit that bad to show the world my boobs. And uh, so they had to scramble and there was a very, um, gentlemen's club downtown vancouver called brandy's and they ended up going down there and asking one of the girls if she wanted to make a couple hundred bucks being in a film and they were like we don't do that and they're like no 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 like a legitimate film like like a for real for real movie and they're like oh okay sure and uh so i ended up having to do this scene with this exotic dancer and she had to get back on stage that night and the, the set i mean sets are very quickly constructed and mm -hmm. they had these rough cedar siding on it and they were, it was splintered like it was old it was cedar shaped siding and it was like very rough wood so i ended up putting my hand between this woman's back and this siding and then we had to like simulate the, right. the fun stuff and it just chewed up the hell i had splinters 
up and down my arm that I was pulling out for like a week. Um, and so that that's kind of my memory of being on set and getting to meet Robert Eglund. It, Cause that was cool. Because um, when you be, turn, because like when you technically turn, it's Robert Eglund, right? Yeah. So I'm more, I morphed into him. Yeah. And, um, we had to do this whole like swapping thing and, and it was cool. And, um, that glove, they have, um, what they call, so there's the prop glove, right? There's a, all, they're all prop gloves, but there's like the, um, the far away one that he's playing. If you're, it's forever away, but in any of the close-ups, they have, they call it the hero glove and it's like legitimately sharp. And so the props master kind of, it, it becomes part of the, um, the weapons mm-hmm. is, is who's in charge of it. And like, it comes out and there's like specific rules around it when that glove comes out only robert and the armor are allowed to touch it uh they both have to check it and agree that it's okay and then everybody knows that you know like they treat it like it's a a a hot weapon and uh and so the i'm doing my bit and you know robert's getting ready to do his thing and then the you know we're ready for the glove and here you go mr eglund and he's like getting it ready and you know and and so to like see the glove come and be like this far from your face and watch him put it on and like like he's done that character for so long that he just starts flipping with it and he uses it to get into you're just like i just fanboyed everywhere like it was it was just awesome but again it's so surreal it was so surreal Mm. to be in that scene and to be around such an iconic actor and character while he goes from Robert to Freddie. Cause I gotta be in the makeup trailer with him. Like I gotta see him go from like him to Freddy Krueger and yeah. I gotta be on set with it. Like it was just so cool. So cool. It was well, everything to maintain my professionalism and not get an autograph. Cause it's all I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, you know, here, sign my tits, do it. Go for it. <laughs> you know, like I just, well, you're my hero just for even like being able like that that franchise is just one of my one of my all-time favorites it was my introduction to horror was seeing the second nightmare on elm street movie so i just like grew up watching yeah. that but yeah tyler i know we're out of time i just want to say thank you it's been an absolute uh delight hanging out with you and uh talking about this movie and shit anytime you want to come and talk about any more movies or talk about anything else oh. we'd love to have you back we are so game, Andrew. I, you just, you let me know, uh, when we can do it. It's not a matter of if, but when I can hop on with you, because I, I mean, you know, I could talk this stuff for years. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you again. Talk to you soon. So what'd you think? Was that not an absolutely incredible, incredible, incredible interview? I mean, I think so. And there was only, I don't know, like maybe like 30, 30 or so technical glitches along the way. I don't know if you caught that, but there was a, there was a little storm in the area, which kept on messing with our internet, but we persevered and Tyler Foley was an absolute champ. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I got to tell you, I, I enjoy that conversation. Any opportunity to talk about a movie always welcome, which is why if you're listening to this and you want to be a guest, hit me up. You can always uh, email me at stamper cinema Dot com. There's a little like icon on there that you can just hit, or you can hit me up at Stamper Cinema Podcast at gmail.com. So it's up to you, however you want to reach out to me. But if you are listening still at this point, 
please subscribe if you haven't already done so and leave a review. Reviews do go a long way and would greatly appreciate it. What else? What else do I want to cover? I mean, I I wanted to find out why, you know, why this movie was important to Tyler. And he offered some really, really great content. But since I have your ears at this point, I want to share a little bit why Stand By Me matters and why it resonates to me. Like Tyler, I when I got this VHS, it was maybe summer of 87, 88. So these kids were maybe a couple of years older than me at the time. But it was it was just something that connected with me. And it might have been my first introduction to Stephen King, not to completely have a side sidebar, but the reason why they called the film Stand By Me instead of The Body is they didn't really necessarily know how to package the body. They might have thought, like audiences might have thought, I don't know, or rather Rob Reiner thought that audiences might have not understood the title. And so he basically just went with the Benny King, Ben E. King song, Stand By Me. So they had that little, that little change. And of course... While this adaptation is pretty, pretty close to what Stephen King wrote, there are a few little liberties. Most notably is the fact that in the body, it kind of focuses more on Chris Chambers, where in the film, we're really really being told the story through Gordy's eyes. And that was something that, that once Rob Reiner was able to figure out that's the angle he wanted to go, go with then the story made more sense to him. And even Stephen King loved it. And legend has it that he got a little misty when, when he, uh, when he did see the film, which is kind of cool. He had to compose himself. He like left the room for like 30 minutes and then came back and uh, was uh, quite moved, quite moved by what Rob Reiner did. And again, I, I agree. I mean, the movie, the movie hits hard. I mean, it is the, do I say it is the definitive coming of age story? Maybe, maybe not. But certainly in the top five greatest coming of age films ever made. And I, while I'm doing this on the spot, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say if I th- can think of anything else. But definitely, certainly in the top five. And all these young actors, like the performances were very, very real. I mean, you, Will Wheaton was Gordy. River Phoenix, RIP, was Chris Chambers. Jerry Jerry O'Connell was Vern. And Corey Feldman, just what a freaking powerhouse he was as a, as a, as a young actor. Just extremely gifted. But, I mean, I can go on and on and on about this film because the movie does matter. I'd probably go back and watch Stand By Me, if not once a year, once every other year or every other year, once every once, yeah, once every other year, uh, I, I can quote it basically front ways and back or frontwards and backwards. I mean, it's, it's good. And it, it's heartbreaking at the same time. And Tyler was right. You know, that moment when we see Ray Brower's body at the end, it's, it's a gut punch. It's a gut punch. And I think it might have been the first film as a kid where 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 death kind of resonated because you know i had seen empire strikes back and you know i had seen films but this one you're not just like shooting faceless bad guys i mean this was this was 
this was somebody that didn't do anything wrong. This was just a kid just walking along the railroad tracks and got, you know, struck by, by a train in the body. In fact, the, the, the novella by Stephen King, it's almost implied at one point toward the end that Ray Brower, I think what might've been murdered, but I would, I'll have to go back and, and double check, double check that. But so if you remember anything from this podcast, make sure it's something else. Don't, you know, don't, don't hold on to that, but it just, you know, again, my, my brain's all over the place and, and yeah, but um, going back to what I was just saying is that moment when where the kids find Ray, it's, it's not that victorious moment, obviously, you know, Ace and eyeball and his gang show up shortly later, but that discovery wasn't wasn't something to be celebrated. They weren't going to be on TV, you know, and it's it, it, it was a heartbreaking moment and not to get super personal. And, you know, thank you very much for Tyler for sharing his his story with his father. When I was in second grade, I want to say I would have been eight. So maybe maybe a year or two after this, I lost one of my childhood friends. His name was Chris Gaines. And while I don't remember a ton from that time, I do remember my mother saying that it messed me up. I think I think and I still have his picture. I still have his picture, but I kind of carried around his picture for a couple of weeks. And um, it was something that was that was, it was a very emotional moment for me in my life. Um, and because uh, I had had kind of like moved around a lot as, as a young kid. And Chris and I. I, I was, I don't know, maybe, maybe a couple weeks into this, into this new school, because I, I want to say it might have happened in February or March. And, and, uh, you know, he and I, uh, we, we, we played, we also made like some like paper mache thing in our class. And we hung out and talked like Star Wars. And unfortunately, the poor kid, you know, uh, he got struck by a car uh, coming home from school one day. And, you know, it was sad. And and I don't know the point that I have, and maybe I'm not even going to hold on to any of this. So this might even just get completely like scrapped. But the the eye opening awakening that that happens when someone discovers death for the first time. You know, I mean, there are so many moments in our lives that are to be cherished and and celebrated and and honored that we think of fondly, but loss and and in death, while they're not necessarily to be designed to be celebrated, they are important. And a movie like this that that has that, where really at, at its core, this movie is about this coming of age and these people discovering themselves. But it's all kind of packaged with this very, very traumatic moment in their lives. I, I think maybe that's why the movie can, continues to connect as, as the generations have gone on. I don't know. I'll leave that for you. Please, if you are still, if you're still with me, drop me a line. Let me know if you've seen this movie, what what you think, how it's affected you, if it has affected you. And um, let's keep let's keep this conversation rolling. And that's it. I'm gonna wrap this one up, get it out to you, and everybody have a great week, and we'll see you next time on another episode of Stamper Cinema.